Hi, Omar. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Yep. Um, can you tell me about thank where you... Thank you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, I mean, I ate, I ate a bunch of things. One of those things, obviously, would be cheesesteaks a lot. But... Um, <laughs> Well, really, uh, my mom was a home cook. You know, she made pasta a lot. Um, we grew up Muslim, so we didn't really eat a whole lot of pork. Uh, she made lots of greens, greens with potatoes, greens with smoked turkey. Um, breakfast was lots of eggs, lots of grits. Um, on the weekend, she would make pancakes with peanut butter and, and, and honey. Um, we ate a lot of snacks and junk food because <laughs> it was just really accessible. Um, but my mom also baked she liked to make her own pizzas she baked breads um, cookies cakes uh, all, all sorts of things and um, one one thing that's really interesting about my upbringing is that we were vegetarian for three years my mom became a nutritionist and a physical uh, therapist and, and like served old women in the neighborhood and, and taught them about exercise and health so we were um, vegetarian for a while and ate like morning what's, what's that brand called morning side Right. I think it's called Morning it's like Star. Extra vegetable processed meats. Morning Star. That's what it's called. We, used to, we ate those for years and I hated them. <laughs> <laughs> Did that kind of affect your your perception of vegetarianism? How do you feel about it now? Oh, one hundred percent. The the way that we were um, the way that we came into vegetarianism is, is from a uh, replacing meat with meat substitutes, and so I'm like, this is what vegetarians are. And, um, I mean, we ate a lot of vegetables. We always ate a lot of vegetables, but, um, it was just kind of removing one one actual like meat protein for meat protein substitutes. Right. Yeah. That's the same vegetables we had been eating. Right. Um, so you launched your honeysuckle pop-up dinners in 2017 and before that you'd worked in restaurants, but you you took a little bit of a break. You wrote for a, a story for Eater, I believe about this, um, when you returned to cooking after that break, mm-hmm. uh, why was a pop-up your, your form of choice? Um, I mean, it was the only, it was the most free outlet that um, I, I found for myself. You know, I could have done catering or things like that, but I didn't want to be cooking in people's homes, making uh, shrimp scampi or something like that. <laughs> So I, um, I've always, I've always felt the need to, um, express myself and ideas, um, in food. And from what I found, uh, you know, work, working alongside chefs and, and being a part of the chef's community and the restaurant community, um, like the best chefs in the world were always expressing who they were or their environment or the, like their stories, um, in dishes and plates, you know, uh, people that come to mind are like Massimo, Fatura, um, <clears throat> the uh Virgilio in um that, that restaurant central you know he talks about the, the mountainous regions in peru um and i wanted i wanted to be able to create food on that level that was personal to me that way right and um, the pop-up the pop-up gave me that freedom right and it also for me from the outside to me it looks like not just with the pop up but also through your writing that this has been a means of controlling the narrative in which you work and that is surrounds you and 
Um, I wanted to ask if you were a poet and writer before you were a chef and how those things now complement each other. Um, I've always written, right. you know, um, poetry, food, food is poetry, the, the physical act of it, the ingesting of it. You know, I really enjoy watching people consume my food. You know, there's always a pause, um, of, of concern, a pause of like introspection. I, I'd like to say, because I also talk about the, the food before they eat it. So, um, it's, it's, I can't divorce the two. Um, for me, and also uh, as as a black chef who's been trying to uh, offer people a varied perception or varied perspectives on on black identity and black culture through food, I knew that uh, a lot of my dishes, if I just placed them in front of the guests, um, wouldn't impact them as as strongly as I would like them to without having to explain the dish. And um, poetry became the, 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 it just grew out of that uh, need to substantiate the work on the plate. Right. What has the response been like from, from folks who aren't, maybe aren't poetry readers, but are going out um, for food a lot? What has, what has been that response to the, the, the poetry? Um. People love the poetry. Yeah, actually, um, yeah. I, I, I was kind of nervous. I didn't. I didn't know. Well, I never read the poetry at the dinners. Right. Um, what I do is I create a zine, um, and the menu items uh, almost always have the same title that the, as the poems. So, I want people to experience the, the poetry for themselves without me, you know, hammering it over <laughs> <laughs> the head with it. Um, right. Also, people don't like to. People don't really like to be like lectured at dinner. You know, right. So. Um, so yeah, they get the zine, they have the meal, they, oftentimes people realize that the zines have the same titles as the poems. I don't tell people this when they come to dinner. I, I like, I like the discovery aspect. Again, of like watching people have these meals. Uh, this meal is really cool to me. So some people read it before, some people read it during, and sometimes people, uh, read it afterwards or take it with them. And some people don't take them at all. <laughs> and all of those, all, all of those scenarios are fine, are fine with me. Right, right, right. Um, you wrote in Esquire recently about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on your livelihood and all the gigs that dried up and you moved back to your hometown of Philadelphia. And in the piece, you were very candid about the contents of your bank account, the limits of cultural capital, and how the politics have never worked in the favor of Black folks. And so... I wanted to hear your perspective on what does a politics that works in favor of black folks look like to you? Um, I mean, that's, that's a hard question for me to answer because I've never seen it. You know? Right. Um, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's really up, up to me or black folks to come up with that answer. We have, a, right. we have a government that can figure, they figure out those answers for themselves every day every damn day like you know um i can i i can cite specific things that make it difficult for black folks to progress i can i can name several different chefs or business owners who um ha have suffered from financial financial instability and have lost their restaurants where other white chefs have uh 
been able to lobby petition and and, and get more money to keep their restaurants afloat you know right um, if we can i think it begins with citing the, the, the specifics that that make it difficult um for black folks to succeed across industries not even just not even just in restaurants you know um if i wanted to open an, a, an advertising agency it would be difficult for even people to be able to trust me as a black person regardless of what school i went to so um you know it's not there's no there's no real there's no real answer that I can, that I can offer you i'm not i'm not like an economist or no of course in that <laughs> um, i think <laughs> yeah the and and the fact that i'm like a poet and, and not academic but poets poets describe the human condition mm-hmm. you know um and i'm not sure i, I think uh poetry offers up a, a sort of um examination of uh, of life uh that, that doesn't always offer solutions. Some things don't have solutions. I don't know. Right. It's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to say that. Um, yeah. I don't want to give you like a kumbaya scenario. Of course. Because <laughs> that's like the first thing that comes to mind. You know, the government's like, yeah, yeah, here. Uh, we, we've uh, we've eradicated racism within our bones and bodies. And so here we're going to make it all equitable. That's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Tunde Wei posted about your... Uh, pursuit of funding for a brick and mortar restaurant. Um, how how did that come about? What are what are your plans for that? Um, you know, I've always wanted a, a brick and mortar restaurant, and maybe this can tie into the last, the last question that you asked me. Um, I I realized uh, once everything kind of dried up and all my money stopped coming in and all the contracts were gone that um, I was living in a very precarious contract, contract, uh, contract to contract uh, life, you know, which is not very different from paycheck to paycheck. And I realized that uh, through my pop-up and engaging in these dinners, these very small, exclusive, focused dinners and charging people 150 to $300, $300 a night, however beautiful those dinners were, um, that was not the only way that I could serve the community. Um, but the entire time that I've been cooking um, through Honeysuckle over the past three years, my, my goal was to gain access into this system so that I could disrupt the system, uh, kind of like the, the, the spook who sat by the door um, situation. And um, once it all stopped and I moved back home to Philly uh, after being in New York for eight years and being situated in my community and just and, and looking around and um, being entrenched in a, in a neighborhood right now in West Philly that is um, at the beginning or on the precipice of, of uh, uh, severe gentrification, um, I found it very important to kind of touch on or exist in really exist in all the all the nuanced ideas that I've been explaining in dishes. I wasn't living in it anymore, and um, living in it again forced me to look at what I was doing and how I could shape it and, and evolve it for a more equitable future from my hands and perspectives and in the soil that I'm standing on right now. So uh, to do, I don't, I don't have the resources to, to raise a hundred, $100,000. Um, so I decided to lean on the community, express this idea of a, of a place that um it's focused on the people who, who live in this neighborhood in terms of hiring them um, at all levels, serving them at all levels, um, bringing 
bringing outside dollars into this community so that uh, you know we can help. I, I can help uh, you know build economy in this community, um, which is what we do by uh, putting our dollars downtown. Um, I wanted to bring downtown up here. Right. And how how do you envision your approach to the pop up changing when it's in a more permanent space? Um, you know, I've also learned that restaurants were just unsustainable, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, my idea prior to this community center was having like a membership based, um, model where there was like an art gallery and then like the pop-up happening in the back. Um, but I never wanted to build a space where I was completely reliant seven days a week upon customers to pay their dollars, to put food in their mouths, to put food on my table, because it was just, that wasn't working out anymore. Um, and so the approach is to offer a more uh, expansive um, experience where food is at the center, but other engagements can take place that revolve around the food. I've always had art in my dinner, so I still want art to be a big part of that. Um, education has been a big part of my dinner, so building out an educational aspect, you know, classes or um, you know, engagements with, with youth or, or things like that. Um, <clears throat> and uh maybe a small bookstore or something or something like that but all of it will have food food be the cornerstone um for for this for this space the space is going to kind of determine what uh what faculties will be existing in that space right 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 and you've uh in the the pandemic have pivoted your business model completely you're doing takeout versions of of the dishes that you had been serving at the pop-up um is that correct based on my social media (laughs) perception um they're not necessarily take take out versions of dishes i mean i'm I'm drawing inspiration from different dishes that i've done but um it's hard to recreate those dishes of course take out format and have people be satisfied so um what i what i am doing is taking like the philosophy around the food that i build to build a more thoughtful um, takeouts right. using my using more of my um, personal stories and affection um, to create these dishes, uh, digging deeper into the actual practices. I mean, I, I figured out a way to cook food in a pit in the city in Philadelphia, you know, to serve to serve to my guests, and I'm still ordering um, from uh, my friends, uh, minority-owned businesses, and uh, places like Anson Mills and, and, and things like that to to create these dishes. So it's still very thoughtful. Right. Um, and again, like this whole, this whole pivot forced me to like really evaluate my model and remove the superficiality out of it. And, and, you know, just dig heels deep into what the ethos was. And that's how I'm able to create these takeout meals. Right. And we've all been saying now that, that restaurants are unsustainable because we've been able to see it so clearly, but was how was that idea maybe manifesting for you even before the pandemic that, that the way that we've structured restaurants um, hasn't, hasn't really been working for, for chefs or for um, the workers at, at restaurants. Um, man, I, I wish we had like a restaurant for a piece of shit dartboard. I just throw a, <laughs> throw a dart into any topic, but um, they just, all of the 
every every facet of it was just unsustainable. I mean, before before it even became uh, public knowledge that they were financially unsustainable, just from a cultural standpoint, they were unsustainable from how they exploit resources to how they exploit people to how chefs exploit themselves and servers and and even even guests to to a degree. When you want to, when you consider, um, and I, I only know this working closely with, with chefs, um, how chefs lie to guests to appear as if they're doing ethical thing. You know, um, there's exploitation at every single level. Um, restaurants seem like they've been built entirely upon deception. Um, and if you want to go back as far as American history and, and the history of slavery, um, there is a deception around this. Uh, elegant, opulent meal you may be having um, with people in service who hand you meals with a smile. So um, until we can rectify that, that, um, (laughs) until we can rectify the beginnings of what the the founders of America, I don't think we're going to rectify the restaurant industry in general. But I mean, most recently, um, I I would say that, you know, inflation, the cost of goods going up, uh, the cost of labor going up, the cost of real estate going up. And uh, our our financial faculties in terms of how people are being paid uh, for for said labor, um, it's just not <laughs> it's just it's not balanced. It's not balanced in any way. Um, and so, seeing that over the course of uh, ten years, and, and really seeing it, well, eleven years, I think it was eleven years, um, but really seeing it amplified over the past uh, five years. Um, and becoming more and more and more precarious with every day um, made me realize that that was just not doing it, doing a traditional restaurant was not an option for me. Right. Have you seen any models of people kind of um, actually dealing with these inequities that are both built into the restaurant system and also built into kind of the cultural fabric? Is there anyone you can point to that, that is, um, uh, actually reckoning with these things in the industry? Um, yeah, I've, I've seen attempts. Uh, the, the Brownsville Community Center um, in, in Brooklyn, I work very closely with them. Um, the South Philly Barbacoa works on it every single day here in Philadelphia uh, in terms of the, the their advocacy for undocumented workers. Um, <clears throat> the La, La Cocina in San Francisco uh, does really, really great work in advocacy for um, helping helping to aid women, women to be in positions of power and agency in their own work. Um, there's, you know, a million places in Detroit mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can name. Yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, food, food Lab, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is a big one. Um, and all, all of these places are sources of inspiration um, for me. Uh, in terms of how they they pull on community resources and operate outside of um, government subsidization to uh, to create a sustainable business. Right. And for you, is cooking a political act? Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't really, I never really labeled it as as such. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, some, something someone said to me uh, just yesterday was really powerful to me. It's, a person said, um, they read a quote that went, I'm going to butcher it, but it's, gonna, it's something like this, where um, 
there's, as long as you see me as black, you'll never see me as unweaponized, right? And so if I'm doing anything, period, as, black, as a black individual, if, mm-hmm. if I'm doing a restaurant, even if I was making fried chicken, it's a political act, even if I'm doing it innocently and honestly, um, it's, it's political. So, I mean, I would have to say yes, um, but I, I never set out intentionally to be like a rabble rouser or a provocateur, um, but just existing is provocative in itself. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And also, I really admire your, your work and your writing. I know I've told you that in, in, in a message, but oh. um, <laughs> in voice, I have not. Oh, so thank you. It's, it's, it's a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.